All right, good morning. We are going to go ahead and get started. If you would please stand up with me. I'm going to read Acts chapter 5 to get us going. It says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. However, he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge and brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. The young man got up, wrapped his body, carried him out, and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, she said, for that price. Then Peter said to her, Why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Instantly, she dropped dead at his feet. When the young men came in, they found her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. In addition, a multitude came together from the towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, he and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. When the high priest and those who were with him arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force, because they were afraid of the people, afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin. And the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. 
the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as a ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you are about to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. They were persuaded by him. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Father, we thank you for this time this morning that we have to, to come together to, to look at the growing witness of, of the early church and to see the opposition that they're, they're facing. Thank you that you're bringing revelation to us today and that you're opening up what it is that was going on there and, and how it how we can apply it to our lives today and how it's going to affect us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. All right, I have um, a lot of scripture to go through and uh, I did not put all of the scripture on slides. What I did was I put together some slides that have some headings and subheadings that will help us follow along with it. And uh, you can write that stuff down and then write scripture references down with it. Uh, so rather than putting all the scripture on slides, which would have been way too long because there is a lot to go through this morning. So uh, we started with Acts 1. We looked at the ascension, uh, the replacement of Judas uh, with the twelve. And then them waiting. They were instructed to wait. And so uh, they were waiting on what we see in Acts 2, which is the fulfillment of Holy Spirit coming. And then we have them coming out, being accused of drunkenness early in the morning. Uh, but, you know, Peter goes to quote Joel and tell them this is the promise that was fulfilled. And so uh, we saw that in Acts 2 and then the undoing of Babel there as well. And then in Acts 3, we started to see the, the growing witness and opposition starting to begin against the apostles, against the believers, and all those numbers that were, were being added. We saw the beggar healed, 
We saw Peter's second sermon there. Moving into Acts 4, we saw Peter and John arrested, and then their first order not to teach in the name of Jesus. And it was also noted in there that uh, by the Jewish re religious elite that these were uneducated men. They didn't have the training that the Pharisees had, and, and so they were wondering where they got all this from. Where did they learn all of this? And so they started to understand some of the power that came with being a believer of Jesus and a follower of his. We saw their collective prayer of boldness there also. And then the, the second mention of having everything in common uh, with a focus on, on their voluntary sharing of possessions. So today we're going to be focusing on Acts 5 and continuing the discussion of growing witness and opposition uh, that is, is really steadily increasing in frequency and severity. Uh, the opposition that the early church was facing was, was really escalating in its response to them in this time. There was the stern talking to and the finger wag that we saw before. And then in what we just read, we see that ramping up where they were, they were also beaten as well. So as we talk through this chapter today, I want to focus on understanding witness, understanding opposition, and understanding defiant response. I think it's important for us to, to be able to look at uh, defiant response in its various ways because there is a defiance that is, is a part of our DNA as believers. It was, it was defying what the people knew at the time and, and what they believed, bringing in something better. But it required a sharp, defiant response to be able to come out and say that. And we're going to get into that more here in a little bit. We're seeing here in, in Acts 5, there's an increase in witness. There's an increase in opposition. And, and we will see there, there, you know, there's a demanding response increase as well. So in, we just read out of the, uh, what is it? Christian Standard Bible. Okay. Thank you. That's the one we have for everybody. If you want a, a copy, we have those downstairs. Um, in the ESV, there's, um, there's three what they call pericopes. So when you see the Bible broke down into those little sections and chapters, those are called pericopes. And in the ESV, there's three of them. There's Ananias and Sapphira, then many signs and wonders done, and then the apostles arrested and freed. And with the focus on uh, witness, opposition, and defiance, I started to look at those and seeing that uh, with Ananias and Sapphira, we're starting to see more of the witness of Holy Spirit, the, the power that is is in the believers and the holiness that is is happening inside of this movement of following Jesus. And with that, you, you see that again, Luke's literary proudness, his his master of of writing, is coming into play. Because at the end of chapter four, we saw Barnabas and he's selling his land, bringing the whole proceeds and laying it at the apostles' feet. The very next story is a complete contrast to that. Whereas it was full transparency here with Barnabas, now we have deception with Ananias and Sapphira. And so there's a big contrast there. And there's likely some dialogue that isn't captured between Peter and Ananias saying, you know, this is the whole of the, the proceeds because Peter just launches into to challenging him and uh, and then him dying. 
And so the gift was, was presented as the entirety of the sale of the land, but we know some was held back and it was a conspiracy. And if you think back to, uh, Joshua chapter seven in, in verses one to 26, we see the story of, of, I think his name's pronounced Aiken. I can't remember. Yes. Thanks. What we see there is Aiken withheld uh, a cloak, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. And what happened was is um, Israel went out to go up against uh, this other nation, and it was a small nation. The, the spies that they sent out said, oh, you don't need that many people. Just bring them about two or 3,000. And so I think they took 3,000, and they were defeated very quickly. And so Joshua was on his face. All the leaders of Israel were on their face, throwing dirt on their heads, just mourning and praying to God, what happened? And so God tells them, somebody held something back. Go consecrate yourselves. Have the people consecrate themselves because tomorrow I want you to call out a a tribe and then you're going to cast lots and call out a clan. You're going to cast lots again and call out a household. Within that household, you're going to call out one man. And in that, that next day, called out Judah. And then uh, a clan after that, all the way down to the man of Achan. And with his deception of holding things back, him and his family stoned, burned, and buried. And severe punishment. So you can start to see the parallel of, of withholding and lying to the community and lying to God as, as what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted a claim, but they wanted it without sacrifice. And, and they wanted comfort without commitment. So what appeared to be public generosity was, was actually family, uh, conspiracy because it says his wife was, was full aware. The Holy Spirit here created a unity within the church that, that was now being broken by what Ananias and Sapphira did. So it was revealed to Peter that uh, deception was taking place. The basic issue here was, was lying, not only to the church, but to the Spirit. Sorry. We also see here the deity of Holy Spirit announced when Peter tells Ananias that you didn't lie to men, but you lied to God. Again, uh, they were under no obligation to participate in the sharing of property uh, or the proceeds from its sale, but he did participate. And in doing so, uh, betrayed the, the community uh, of, of the congregation, betrayed oneness. I found um, in a commentary written by a man named Tom Constable, He said, lying to the Holy Spirit is a sin that Christians commit frequently today. When Christians act hypocritically, hypocritically by pretending a devotion that is not there or a surrender of life that they have not really made, they lie to the Holy Spirit. If God worked today as he did in the early Jerusalem church, undertakers would have much work. It's pretty, uh, pretty harsh conviction uh, of things. And, and I, I don't, I want to say that it's inaccurate um, because it, it does happen quite a bit that there is is a, a claim of, of surrender, a claim of devotion that really isn't there. Maybe for a couple hours a week. 
on Sunday. Sickness, sickness and death, they don't always uh, result from sin, but God reserves the right to deal with sin in his church, even in the strongest possible penalty. So God sees what's going on in our hearts. He knows what's going on in there. And when hidden sin threatens to derail uh, the church's ministry, he may choose to deal with it very severely. And as tempted as we may be to, to kind of push this story off into some dark corner of, of early church history, because it's really kind of difficult to understand. It's, it's Even as we've, we've broken it down Wednesday night and, and even looking at it more, it's still difficult to understand why this took place. But it deals with money and greed and deceit. These are all problems in today's church. Deceit, disunity, duplicity, these all undermine Holy Spirit's work and, and really erode the effectiveness of Christian community. And going on to look at many signs and wonders done that next, uh, pericope there in, in Acts 5. Christians, they're, we're responsible to proclaim the gospel and leave the results to God. The apostles out, uh, breaking the, the no witnessing mandate. They understood this. They understood that it was their job to go out and share the gospel. What happened to them? What happened with the people hearing? They left that up to God. They left the outcome up to God. There were miracles taking place through all of the apostles because it says they were all there. And, and people were coming to faith daily and placing their belief in Jesus. They didn't let it stop them. They didn't let, uh, um, the finger wag that they were under at this point stopped them because they knew it was their job to go out. It also says no one dared join them. There's a, another uh, commentary, and, and this one was done by John D. Pohill, and he said, "It is the same two-sidedness of the Spirit's power that he just that had just been demonstrated in Ananias and Sapphira. The power of miracles attracts." The awesome power of the spirit that judges also demands commitment and responsibility. Before that power, the crowd kept its distance with a healthy respect, unless they were willing to fully submit to the power and make a commitment. I thought that was an interesting statement there because this is people that are admiring them, but wanting to stay away. They weren't willing to fully commit and be devoted to what it was that they knew the calling was taking place in these people's lives. The demand that Peter and the rest of the apostles were putting on the believers may have felt too much for them to commit to. So they kept their distance because they didn't want to end up like Ananias and Sapphira. But miracles do attract. People weren't going to the colonnade. They were, they were now just laying sick out on the streets. There might have been too many people there. The drawing of this people to the, to this place and, and to the apostles was also, as we see, going out to the entire region. So what was happening in this small little place in this bigger city was now spreading out to the entire region. And so now you have people from all the towns coming and bringing their sick. So moving on to the, the apostles arrested and freed. We see that overt efforts to proclaim the, the gospel in 
what could be called an alien environment or a foreign environment will often result in persecution. But God takes care of his people. Absolutely takes care of his people. The apostles were arrested again, but they were freed. There was angelic intervention that freed them in the night. And then they went right back to proclaiming the gospel. They knew that was their call, so they went right back to it immediately. They were instructed to do so, and they obeyed. This is part of that commitment and, and devotion that was required. They go right back to pro proclaiming the gospel. Witnessing Christian work with the Holy Spirit to, to proclaim the message of, of crucifixion and resurrection. Those who oppose that message find themselves fighting against God. We see that in, in Gamaliel's words. The apostles there were brought in for questioning. Uh, because they're defying the order not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what they were told not to do. But they did it anyway. And what does Peter not do here? Peter doesn't offer a defense. He doesn't, he doesn't try to defend himself. What he does is he just continues to witness to them. He's out witnessing to all the people in Solomon's colonnade. Now he's standing before the Sanhedrin and he does the same thing. You can see it in verses 30 to 32. There is witness offered, not defense. And they, this time they're beaten and, and again ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus. But somehow God's grace can produce joy, even in the midst of suffering and public disgrace. There was no release uh, with just a warning this time, no angelic deliverance. It was time for them to suffer for the faith. And, and I'm sure suffer they did. The beating sounds like it would have been really intense. But the apostles, they, they consider this something to find joy in. It's difficult to look at, at a beating and say, I'm going to find joy in getting beaten 39 times with a rod. Something that did kill people. Some people didn't survive. But again, God will allow nothing to stand in the way of proclamation of this gospel and the expansion of his church. So that gets into, uh, into focusing on witness, um, opposition, and defiance. Jordan, if you want to pull up the first slide, there's some down after the Acts 5 scriptures. That's the one. Perfect. Thank you. So we're talking about witness. Christian witnessing is, is made effective through the empowering, strengthening, and guiding of the Holy Spirit. Witnessing is an aspect of, of spiritual warfare, and, and believers need to know the Holy Spirit's aid to face opposition. When we're witnessing, we're telling what we've seen, what we've personally experienced. And, and yes, you, you can share the stories of others, but when it's your own story, your own experience, there is a greater passion that's carried in, in sharing of your testimony. So under this, there, there is some, some headings and, and subheadings as we go through these. And so, uh, witness is the main one we're looking at here. And so what, uh, what I'm going to be looking at here is, is as you look at these, you'll see witness and then Holy Spirit supports believers in witnessing. As I go through each of these, uh, I have some scripture. And I'm going to read, and you can write down the reference. I don't have them up here on the slides because there's just far too many of them. 
But this is all leading to a point because we need to be able to see ourselves in these stories that we're looking at. We need to be able to understand that we are the church just like they were. We have the same job to continue to witness. We have the same job to continue to defy opposition that is coming against that witness and sharing of Jesus. So we have to be able to see ourselves in these things. We have to be able to understand it. And so we need to understand what's taking place uh, in the background just as much as what's taking place right in front of us. So in looking at witness, Holy Spirit supports believers in witnessing. We see it right here in Acts 5, 31 to 32. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And looking at Holy Spirit empowering effective witness, we can go back to Acts 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5 says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's Holy Spirit empowering effective witness. We could also look at Luke 4, verses 14 through 19. It says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the last one here for Holy Spirit empowering effective witness is Luke 24, verses 48 through 49. It says, You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Stay in the city until Holy Spirit comes and empowers you. And the next part here under witness is, is Holy Spirit confirms the testimony of believers. We're going through these things because you need to understand what is, is behind you, what is backing you. 
And that's why I'm going through this, this long list here. So Holy Spirit confirms the testimony of believers. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. There's also Hebrews 2, verses 3 to 4. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He's confirming the testimony of believers. This is something else the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit's also going to convince people of their need. In John 16, verses 7 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they did do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. There's a need for Jesus. And this is part of that outcome that through our witness, Holy Spirit is making happen. He's, he's convincing people of their need and prompting response. This is another reason we can't get too wrapped up in outcomes. All right, Holy Spirit brings people to new birth. John 3, verses 5 to 8 says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Holy Spirit is going to guide believers in witnessing. So we have a guide to take us through witnessing. We're going to jump ahead here in Acts 8, verses 29 to 40. This is the story of Philip, and it says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that was he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Az Azotus. Hmm. Missed that one. 
Philip found himself in, in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Again, we are, are guided in our witness to share Jesus with people. In Acts 16, verses 6 and 7, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Wow. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So there's guidance still going on there. Looking at witnessing and spiritual warfare, Revelation 12:11 says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Ephesians 6, 15 through 17 says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. There is, is an aspect of, of spiritual warfare that we have to be paying attention to as well and, and understanding in our witness what's taking place. So in, in witnessing and persecution, there are, are some things under that that need to, to be looked at too. We know that we've talked about becoming a disciple of Jesus is not going to be easy. Witnessing will result in persecution. If you are out there sharing Jesus, there is going to be persecution that comes against you. It's, it's a guarantee. Acts 4.17, it says, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. This is that that first instance of, of them being told, don't speak in the name of Jesus. You see it again in Acts 5.40, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. So again, there's that escalation. In Acts 7, verses 54 to 60, it says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Again, enraged. Same language we see in chapter 5. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sign against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Witnessing is going to result in persecution. And we are going to continue to see that same thing in Acts again. We'll see it again in Acts 22 as well. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20 says, And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Colossians 4, 3 through 4 says, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door 
for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Second Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Witnessing is going to bring about persecution. It's not going to be easy. It's going, you're going to have things come up against you. Uh, it's just something that is guaranteed. But there is, is help to face persecution. There's help from the Holy Spirit. There's supernatural help. In Matthew 10, verses 18 to 20, it says, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not who, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So, the, the, some of the help that's going to be given when you're you're dragged before courts or before leaders is Holy Spirit is going to provide to you the words to speak. And we also saw in Acts five there was a, a supernatural help of them being released from prison. And then, you know, they, they found the doors locked, the guards standing there alert, but the apostles weren't there. They had been taken out. In Acts 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. So we see the Lord going before us to prepare where it is we're going. There's more help there. There's help that, that is going to help us speak. There's help that's going to carry us through. And there's preparation going before us. The next section uh, here is, is witnesses promoted by persecution. In Acts 8, Verses 1 to 5, it says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered were went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them, proclaimed them the Christ. You see, this is the, the persecution that's coming against the church is at the same time promoting. It's, it's spreading the news of what is taking place and what's happening. And it's pushing them out wider. Philippians 1 verses 12 to 14 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has been, so that it has become known throughout the world, Imperial Guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Not only is it just spreading what's going on through the persecution, it's emboldening those who are witnessing for Christ to go out. As they're seeing what's happening, they're seeing the 
the power that is is coming on the people who are continuing to witness in the face of persecution. They can see the help that's coming to them. Again, Christians are responsible to proclaim the gospel and leave the results up to God. The outcomes belong to God. What we see here in witnessing is partnership. We're partnering with Holy Spirit when we open our mouths to share Jesus, when we use our vo voice to proclaim the gospel. And then you just relieve, leave the results to God. Uh, outcomes are not ours to produce. Switching into to opposition now. The, this is another thing we're seeing over and over again in the story through Acts, and that we'll see through the, the rest of the book is there is a witness taking place and there's also an opposition. And in this, we see that the forces of evil, they're antagonistic towards God, his people, his work, and, and believers must oppose them. Witnessing Christians work with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the message of crucifixion and resurrection. Those who oppose that message find themselves fighting against God. The same thing that Gamaliel talked about in Acts 5. We got to remember it's about God. It's about his people. It's about his work. These opposing forces are fighting against God, and they're just wanting to use us in that fight. We, we can't always take everything personal because it's not always directed at us. It's, this opposition is directed at God. This is one of the things that it's hard to, to keep grasp of. An attempt to, to victimize you is opposition against God. And like the apostles, ought to provoke joy. I know that can be difficult in the moment, uh, but I'm hoping it will be easier when we remember that the opposition is against God. So the targets of opposition from evil forces, there's, there's three here we're looking at. And the first one is, is God himself. Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They want to get out from under God himself. They don't want to be under his reign or his rule. They want to do it themselves. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Isaiah 63.10 says, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore they turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Acts 7.51 says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Revelation 17, 14 says, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So opposition starts with God himself. It can also be directed at believers, at us. Acts 8, 31 says, And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
There's, there was opposition here against God's people and against them knowing, but there was an overcoming there as well. 2 Samuel 16, verses 5 to 8, when King David became, came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged all. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. We just know that we know what God said about David. But we know that God wasn't cursing David. God was actually blessing his entire line. So this opposition coming up against him obviously was was opposition against God through coming against David. We're going to see more of this in Acts 26 as well. More opposition against God's people. Again, this is a continual theme throughout this. Another area of, of opposition of evil forces is God's work. So we've seen opposition against God himself, against his people. There's also opposition against the work that is being done in partnership with God. First Thessalonians 2 2 says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So coming against the work of sharing the gospel, trying to be prevented from going into the cities and doing so. We can even look back at the Old Testament, Ezra 4, verses 4 and 5. It says, and the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Nehemiah 4, 7 through 8 says, but when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Acts 4.18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak and teach in the name of Jesus. Same thing in Acts 5. This is opposition coming against the work that the apostles were trying to do. Opposition that was coming against uh, Nehemiah and what he was trying to do in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. There's opposition coming against the work of God. What are some of the sources of opposition? Well, there's, there's the world, there's the flesh, and the devil himself. When we look at the source of opposition being the world, we can see in John 15, verses 18 to 19. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. John 17, 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 1 John 3, verse 
13 says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We talked about surprise recently. And in ministry, it should be no surprise that there is going to be opposition that comes up against us. It should be expected. How that's going to come, we're not always going to be aware of that. And, and how it may come be a, may be a surprise. But the, the fact that it is coming shouldn't be a surprise. So don't be surprised that the world hates you. Don't be surprised that there is going to be opposition from the world. When we look at the flesh, Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, and keep you from doing the things you want to do. It's Galatians 5.17. There is a, a fleshly desire that is against the things of the spirit. Because the fleshly desires are things like instant gratification. There's no, no substance to them. There's nothing lasting there. With the Spirit, we have lasting, lasting substance. There is eternal life coming with following Jesus. Not just an instant gratification for, for whatever is right in front of us. Matthew 26, 41 says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's weakness when we try to do it on our own. When we go in the empowerment of Holy Spirit, there is strength there. And that's something we need to, to remember as well as we start to get into defiance. The third source of opposition we're looking at here is the devil. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What's that mean, being sober-minded? Well, we know in the natural means, you know, don't be drunk, right? Because what happens when you get drunk? Your inhibitions are lowered. You're stupid. That's, that's the result, right? The result becomes stupidity. You're going to do things, say things that you wouldn't normally do because you're not sober-minded. And so, yes, sure, you know, be sober-minded in that way. But also, in sober-mindedness, we are taking on the mind of Christ. We are, are using that as what we are doing. We're taking every thought captive, making it, it bow to Jesus, right? We're, we're interrogating these thoughts, understanding where they come from. This is sober-mindedness. So be watchful. Matthew 13, verses 38 and 39. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Again, this is, this is opposition coming from the devil because he is trying to make people into opposition against God into opposition against God's people, against God's work. Revelation 2.10 says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. But faithful unto death, and I will give you, be faithful unto death, and I will give you 
the crown of life. Again, this, this is expectation. We can have expectation that persecution is going to come against us when we choose to follow Jesus. When we choose to go out and witness for him, there is going to be opposition that comes. So what are some of the strategies used in opposition? There is uh, six we're going to talk about here. Shows of strength, discouraging propaganda, surprise, seduction, deceitfulness, and sustained pressure. And this first one shows the strength. We can look at, you look at, let's see here. First Samuel 17. This is... 1 Samuel 17, verses 10 to 11 says, And the Philistine said, Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all, all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath comes out. There's a show of strength here that says, I'm bigger than you are. I can overpower you. This is one of the strategies that's going to be used. It's a natural thing that when we look with our natural eyes, rather than looking with with our, our spiritual eyes, all we're going to see is what's right in front of us. And we're, we're going to see this huge giant that, you know, on our own, there's no possible way to defeat. But with with the spirit and, and with uh, with the power that, that comes at, uh, of being in the spirit, there is an overcoming that can, can come against this, this strategy of using a show of strength. In the strategy of discouraging propaganda, we can look at 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 to 22. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Saying, excuse me, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. So there's, there's propaganda going out against people of Israel here and and they're telling them you can't you can't trust Egypt it's it's like a, a broken reed that'll pierce your hand if you lean on it so if you lean on Egypt for support it's like putting a reed up against your hand that's broken it's going to pierce right through it's going to hurt you it's not going to be good for you so there's discouraging propaganda that can be used against believers who are out witnessing there's also surprise is is a strategy that's used. And, and we know in ministry we should be prepared for this to, to come about. But it is a tactic because not, not all believers are going to be prepared. They're not all going to be ready to minister in the moment that comes up when you see the man begging on the side of the road and you find out his name's Walter. And it's like, oh my gosh, all the pieces are together, right? <laughs> I might hug him as I'm pulling him up rather than just taking his right hand if his name is Walter. 
Psalm 10, verses 8 to 9. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. So if you think militarily, there is, there's an ambush, right? We all understand the term ambush. It's a surprise attack that just pops up. And what we have to understand about an ambush is, is there is an optimal kill zone that is set up for those that are executing the ambush. So when they initiate the ambush, they have you right where they want you. And what can we not do? We cannot sit there and be a sitting duck, right? We can't stay a stationary target. You have to move. So when, when a surprise attack comes up, don't be still. Don't be silent. Move. I always use the term shoot, move, and communicate in that order. You shoot, you move, and then you start communicating, bringing others into the fight. There's also seduction. That's another strategy that's used for disrailing witness of people and, and bringing opposition against them. Matthew 4, 9 says, And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the temptation of Jesus out in the wilderness, right? Satan was trying to seduce Jesus into giving up who he was. And, and being somebody who he wasn't, which wasn't going to happen. First John chapter two, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of the life is not from the father, but is from the world. There is a seduction trying to take place to pull you away from the kingdom, to pull you out of the calling of God. There's also deceitfulness. Jude 4, where certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We can look at deceitfulness being played out today. People trying to deceive the church to to come in and cause division. Just cause any type of chaos possible. It's even more severe in other countries where it's not permissive to worship Jesus. Those people coming in under deceitfulness are looking to kill people. And that's still happening today. That's another strategy that's used against the witness of Jesus. There's also sustained pressure. And to a certain extent, we can understand sustained pressure. It comes in various different forms. We know that. There are a lot of things that want to, to cause us to stop witnessing for Jesus. And if there, if the enemy finds something that they can push on over and over and over again that causes you to shrink back, play small, self-sabotage, whatever it is, then they're going to continue to press that. This is sustained pressure that's going to continue to come over and over and over again.
And Nehemiah 6.4 said, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. The guy, that was a busy answer. The sustained pressure. So what are some of the motives for opposition? Well, there's jealousy. We can see in Psalm 106, verses 16 to 18, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Avaram. Fire also broke out in, in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. So there's jealousy. In this case, we see what happened because of their jealousy. It didn't work out for them. There's also the motive of troubled conscience. Troubled conscience? John 7, 7 says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that it works, that its works are evil. So there is, there's a troubledness going on in people that it causes them to have a motive to oppress the people of God, to come against God, to come against his works. There's also vested interests. Acts 16, verse 19 says, But when her owner owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So we'll see this story later on, but Paul cast a demon out of this girl who was um, divining for her owners and making them lots of money. And so they had a vested interest in this girl staying demon-possessed. And so th this is another motive of opposition because Paul cast her out, cast that demon out of her. They, they seized him. It's also no just cause. John 15, 25 says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. They hated Jesus without cause. There was no cause to hate him. He didn't do anything wrong. He never sinned. He just brought a message that they couldn't couldn't handle. So dealing with opposition, right? We've got to be prepared. Second Peter 3 17 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Second Corinthians 10 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine excuse me, divine power to destroy strongholds. So we, we got to be prepared. We, we need to be prepared spiritually, not just physically. We have to be cultivating relationship with Holy Spirit. We have to be in our scripture studying. We have to understand what it is that's coming against us. Again, we don't want to be caught off guard and surprised. There's also keeping a right perspective. Nehemiah 4, 14 says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Romans eight thirty one says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This is keeping a right perspective here. And I think Romans eight thirty one really does that well. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great question to, to remember and to ask ourselves often. And there's also prayer. Luke 18, 7 says, and, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Acts 4, 23 through 24 says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Prayer, that's, that's another way of dealing with opposition. We also need to be patient. We also need to be prudent. We need to, to hold on to perseverance. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, your labor, is not in vain. Perseverance. We can also look at that as resilience as well. We have to remember overt efforts to uh, proclaim the gospel in, in this foreign environment that we live in because we're not of the wor world. Uh, it will result in persecution, but God is taking care of his people. He will take care of you. The last piece I want to look at before we transition into uh, a conversation here is defiance. Talking about open refusal to obey any authority is basically the way defiance is, is defined. And defiance is seen in the Bible as uh, evil when authority is, is legitimate, but good when authority is ungodly. And, and I believe this is a point of contention in the church. What is legitimate authority and illegitimate authority? Well, we have to look at what's in line with the kingdom and what isn't. And when I think about defiance, and I was thinking about discussing this this morning because I think it's, it is something that we need to be taking hold of in the face of opposition. And, uh, I, I thought about July 4th, 1776, you know, the, the day we signed the Declaration of Independence for this country. And so what was the nature of the beginning of the United States? Rebellion. Or defiance. It's rebellion or it's defiance of tyranny. Okay, so like the formation of the US, US uh, but on a much more significant scale, the church began in defiance. We see this throughout the book of Acts. Whenever believers uh, are defiant in the face uh, of orders not to share the gospel with Jesus. We've seen it twice already. They're, they're not going to stand for this, uh, what is now tyranny. Our DNA carries defiance, not just as citizens of this country, but as citizens of the kingdom. There, there is an element of, of defiance that's in our DNA. How are the direction of that defiance? It has to be pointed. But we are defying what is opposed to God. And that is the big thing to keep in mind. There's a form of tyranny that is attacking the church today, attempting to silence the voice of the body of Christ. You can see it everywhere you look. But what are we doing about it? Well, mostly infighting. Because, you know, we've allowed compromise to rule and reign. We've lost our defiant DNA to speak boldly against sin while offering repentance and forgiveness. 
And in that loss, we're, we're defying, we end up defying one another. And, and really, what are we doing? We're doing the same things that Gamaliel warned against. We wind up defying God. So we need to recapture our boldness to defy sin and compromise. You just remember that defiance of, of God is condemned. To defy God's people is to defy God. Defiance of, of legitimate authority in Scripture is, is not condoned. We know that. We know over and over because Jesus even showed us that defiance against legitimate authority is, is not to be uh, not to be done. But defiance against ungodly authority, that's where we have to draw that line. The ungodly authority that claims sin is good. Ungodly authority that says you can't share Jesus. These these are things that are, are ungodly authority and take us back to uh, looking at the question, what is legitimate and illegitimate authority? What's in line with the kingdom and what is it? If it's in line with the kingdom or not directly opposed, then we need to be careful. We need to take caution and talk to the Holy Spirit about how it is we are going to point our defiance. Like the apostles, though, they, they pointed their defiance. When they were brought before the Sanhedrin, Peter didn't offer defense, he offered witness. And, and we ought to remember that. God will allow nothing to stand in the way of the proclamation of his gospel and the expansion of his church. And we as the church are called to witness. We are called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that call, what can we expect? Opposition, right? We can expect that. But it is ours to openly defy the opposition to God his people, and his work. So be open and honest with God and fellow believers at all times. It's something we have to remember. We have to lay hold of the fear of the Lord. We need to learn to proclaim the gospel message with simplicity and clarity. We can't let civil authorities intimidate us uh, with regard to our faith, to our Christian faith. We need to trust in God to deliver us from or even in our suffering. Because we know there are times where we will suffer. Just like we saw the apostles beaten here in Acts 5, there are going to be those times. We just need to trust God to bring us through that. So as we continue to have this conversation this week, I just continue to encourage you to pray that the fear of the Lord would, would take hold in your heart and that you would be led by that. Ask Holy Spirit to uncover any deception in your heart and deal deal with that with the Holy Spirit. Ask for boldness to be found in you whenever oppression arises. Whenever it comes up, ask for boldness. Ask Holy Spirit to bring revelation on, on how to simply and clearly share the gospel. And do, and do so with, with a simplicity and clarity that puts Jesus on display and offers repentance and forgiveness. 
I ran through defiance there because we were getting a little long. I didn't realize it was that late. And so um, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and transition now into having conversations.